Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and this is my podcast, The 20 Minute Scriptorian, where I explore LDS scripture and doctrine for the Come Follow Me curriculum for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Like most of you, I'm a typical Latter day Saint, and I've held a variety of callings from gospel doctrine teacher to institute. I've always loved learning and sharing the scriptures of Christ. Recently, I went back to school, and I'm currently a theology student, where I get to learn context, history, ancient languages, and more importantly, how to learn. I thought you might want to share in what I was learning, and the 20-minute scriptorian was born. While I am a believer, these thoughts are my own, and they are not an official representation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for listening, and join me on the journey as we explore the scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. Welcome back, Scriptorians. This is Lori, and we are headed into Abinadi and Mosiah 11 and onward today on the 20-Minute Scriptorian. So we're headed into some deep doctrine today, and we'll try to break this up a little bit, and I think in three parts. So let's see what we can do. First, let's talk a little bit about the structure, what's going on in some of the setting as we head into this King Noah section, and then we will talk a little bit about the grounding of the contention that the trial will call it and then third the Christology so then we'll talk about actually the theology or the uh, kind of the idea of Christ and what we're learning about the atonement so first today I think all we'll probably have time for then is really this kind of what's going on with the Benedi and some of the setting as well as the narrative and and different things so if you haven't had a chance go back and listen to the all about section because this section of Mosiah as we know has a lot of flashbacks and you've got different times and places and things going on and so we've left Zarahemla we're down in the land of Nephi we're actually down in Lamanite territory and we're with a group of people that have broken off and so we are now we've left Zenith and now we're with his son Noah and so we're going to learn about what happens with Noah now last time we talked a little bit about Limhi which is Noah's son so lots of timeline but but it doesn't it's not terribly hard to follow but it, just kind of keeping track of what's going on so in this section with Noah we're starting to find some really interesting things that I want to talk about kind of the structure and the characters and the narrative that's going on so uh, give us a, an idea of what's going on. So as we left King Zenith, he was a pretty good king. Now there were some other people that were probably, we talked about one of the guys that led him that was a little bit proud, but Zenith seems to be a pretty good guy. And so they, they leave Zarahemla. They're anxious to get this land of their inheritance where Nephi and his family had grown. And this is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. So just lots of culture, lots of differences. And now the Nephi culture has blended with Zarahemla somewhere in the north and they have left and come down back to the south now Zenith again pretty good king seems to be pretty doing a pretty good job um, they are kind of living in enemy territory so just very nearby is the uh, king of the Lamanites and the, the past one was named Laman uh, very tricky how they do that but Laman was there again but they, it was a trap so that they could ensnare them get their land so they built back up uh, the land now we meet Noah. So the first character we're going to see is Noah. And a lot of times you think this is a standoff between Noah and Abinadi. But in a lot of ways, there are a few more characters in here that I think who it's really about. So 
absolutely it is a a standoff between the kings you're going to see the difference between king noah you're going to see the difference between king limhi you're going to see the mosiah um and we just have left benjamin recently so a lot of mosiah is talking about leadership and kingship however there's some other characters in this besides noah and abinadi is going to really head off against the priests so that's going to be the second group of people that we're going to see we're going to see so we're going to see noah we're going to see the priests we're also going to see abinadi and lastly, we're going to see the people. So it's kind of who, those are kind of the four different groups that Mosiah, uh, or Mormon in this case, as he uh, did the abridgment, is going to lead us to. So I want you to think about each of these people and why Mormon's teaching us about these people in a narrative. So, so just keep in mind, what are we learning about Noah? Then what do we learn about the next person, the next person, the next group of people? And why? And are we like them today? Am, are, am I like that? Uh, anything like that. Try to tell us something about the people involved. What were the mistakes they were making? What was the Lord trying to do in helping them? So the first one that we meet is Noah. Now, right out of the gate in chapter 11 of Mosiah, we're going to get a long list of things that we learn about him. And and it's really easy if you if you were to paint this picture in in a perspective of the people, you might say, oh, man, he seems like a pretty good guy. Uh, and then, but then it is very clear that he is being painted as not a good guy. So just, just listen to these and see if we can see how we can see both perspectives of Noah. First, lest we be confused by what we're supposed to get out of Noah, it basically says, for behold. Now that phrase already, for behold, it's a conclusion, it's strong, it's like here's the thesis statement about Noah. He said he did not keep the commandments of God, but he did walk after the desires of his own heart. So he did not keep the commandments and he was all about himself. So in case we're thinking, oh he was so good, he, things went really well for him, we're going to remember the point of this is that we already know the answer. This guy was all about himself. We certainly don't know anybody like that today, do we, in politics? No, no, no. There are no leaders like that today. No leaders like that. But there you go. It also then it starts to say, here's how we know. Here's how we know some of the things that he did. And it goes through this list right, right out of the gate. He caused people to commit whoredoms. Okay, that is an interesting one. So what was what is that about? So we don't we don't know, right? We don't really know. We know coming out of the time of Benjamin um, that they seems like they were kind of uh, there was a lot of plural marriage, but more in a way of kind of to me it like chattel, like selling your your daughters as some kind of power play or some kind of uh, alliances, and so. It was, it was a power play there. So maybe it was something like that. Maybe it was something else. But that's an interesting word because it tends to do with sexual morality. So it is, they caused them to commit whoredoms. Mm, interesting. The next one, outrageous, the next one. 20% tax, right? A fifth of everything they had. Uh, I wouldn't mind paying a mere 20%. So uh, we live in a different time. We live in a different time <laughs> when they're just like, oh, can you believe? That's just incredible. A fifth of everything. And you're like, yeah, yeah, if only... If only were that. Um, but why did he? Why did he have such taxes? It wasn't so that they could protect the people. It wasn't so that they could feed the people. And it builds on it. it says so 
he could be rich. And he talks about his opulence, right? So he had many wives and concubines, and so he had to support them. So the people are supporting this lavish lifestyle of his many wives and concubines. Also, it talked about him growing a vineyard and becoming uh, a, a drunkard on wine. So this was a guy all about his passions, right? So whether it was immorality or drinking or riches or power. So you're painting this picture of here's this just uh, opulent, outrageous man. Okay, next. Who is next on our list? The priests. First thing we learn is that Noah had put down the old ones that Zenith had put in place, and he installed new ones. Oh, that even sounds a little bit like changing different political parties and things, too. This reminds me of. But again, it's also changing the power base. So these guys are people that are going to support Noah. These people are not here because they are righteous and good teachers, called of God, these are corrupt, right? So these priests are, are ones that are there for power. And it literally says they're for the pride of their hearts. Also for laziness. Laziness comes up as an interesting word. You don't hear, you sometimes hear idleness and things, but you don't hear the word laziness very often in the scriptures. How many times you said they was lazy? So someone who's lazy is like, we're going to make everybody else work so that I can sit around. I can sit around. So boy, don't like that idea. So they were lazy. Um, and then they said the same thing about the taxes so that they could be lazy, they could live in iniquity, and then they caused the people to be idolatrous. Also strange, right? So they were teaching the people to worship idols or to worship uh, other things. So clearly these guys were not um, good teachers. And it even says they were about flattery. Okay, so right now we're saying, okay, these priests are bad news. These are bad news priests. And so here are the results. Here are the results. It says that they were they built a lot of elegant and spacious buildings. So they built a huge and spacious. Uh, spacious buildings, anciently, were hard to make, if you think about it. Uh, you don't see really big open buildings until the Renaissance in um, European culture. Uh, so to have these big buildings in Mesor or uh, North America is pretty amazing because the structure isn't there. It's really hard to make something open. So if you have a big and open building, it's amazing architecture, a lot of money, a lot of space. We take for granted that we can make big, spacious buildings buildings. Uh, but that one really jumped out at me. Also that they were very ornamented and they were full of precious things, gold and it lists a bunch of stuff. And so they were spending a lot of money to do these buildings. So they would be government buildings because then next he says, and the temple. Okay. They have a temple. Well, of course they've got a bunch of priests, but also that was very elegant. So they're going to say, yeah, a lot of money is poured into that thing. And then it talks about something interesting. They built those seats for the priests so they could sit up high and then they could lean on it. So it's like lazy laying on the banister as they talk about it. Also, another description says they make a really very, very, very high tower so Noah could look out over his kingdom. Now, later we're going to hear about Gideon and that tower. So remember that tower with Noah. But he, but Noah would go up and stand on it. So it's kind of a symbol of his, his power, a symbol of his pride. And contrastingly, he takes down the other tower that used to be used as a watchtower. And so, and he takes away the guards. So he's pouring the money into things that make him look good and things that are opulent and, and overwrought and elegant and ornate. Now, if you were, if you were one of the people living in that, you'd say, hey, it seems like we're doing pretty well. I mean, yeah, I got to pay a lot of taxes, but look at we look at how rich we are, and our king is rich, and we have all these amazing buildings and the temple. Of course, we want to make a beautiful temple. What's wrong with that? So here's the thing. 
when you look at it without really digging apart, you see that the priests and Noah were doing these building things to be lazy and power and not because it was a sign of wealth or prominence or a good economy, right? In fact, they were overtaxing the people to be able to do it. But if you looked at it, you might say, well, the symbols of this looks like we're really successful. It looks like we're being blessed. It looks like our money's being well spent, our taxes, right? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And then he says something else really interesting that they were using this for. They take down the guards. And then the people started to get attacked. So small incursions of the Lamanites start to happen. Now remember, they had tried be- before in Zenith's time a couple of times. And they were uh, the Lamanites were not successful. So they, this group was successful in defeating the Lamanites. So they started to get kind of kind of proud of themselves. In fact, um, there gets to be a, a bigger battle goes on. And... Noah and his his armies are victorious, and so they get very proud and boasting. Now, here's why this is important. When we get to the Isaiah section in the next two chapters, those are exactly the things that the, that the priests are going to look to, to say, these are signs of the Lord's favor. And so the opulence, the buildings, the victory, we're doing great. The Lord, these are clearly signs of the Lord's favor. And so if you don't put this part of the story with the next two chapters, you won't understand the great debate and why they're using the scripture, how, you know, how beautiful are on the feet and, and the, proclaim the gospel and good tidings. That won't make any sense because what they're telling you is they're living in a time of great opulence and it looks like they have a lot of the Lord's favor. And because they feel like those are signs of favor, they're going to say, Abinadi, you must be wrong. So they're going to twist those scriptures because of these evidences, the high taxes, the opulent living, and this battle, this battle. Okay, so that's the priest's. And that is Noah. So we have this idea of power, pride, laziness, opulence, high taxes, so you can be lazy, post boasting in, in the pride of the Lamanites. But they're still living in kind of a barricaded society. They're still not, they're the minority down there. Uh, this, you can just feel, this is not going to end well, right? This is a terrible idea. And, we're, and you know what we should do? We should take down some of our watchtowers and take some of our guards because, you know, we don't have money to pay them so that we can build some more towers to ourselves. And uh, those banisters, we need those banisters so we can peer down on people and look very powerful. Um, interesting. Enter our next character, Abinadi. We don't know much about him. Um, we do, you always see the pictures, uh, the, the Arnold Freiburg or Freiburg pictures, where he's kind of old and gnarly and, uh, and buff. Um, so you'll see a lot of paintings or drawings go off that. We don't actually know that he's old. In fact, I think I read somewhere that we thought he might be younger. But uh, don't we don't know that he's old. We don't know that he's old. So, um, so take that picture out of your head. Um, that We don't know that. He also comes in and he's going to visit in two different visits. So he's going to visit now and then he's going to visit two years from now. And the first time he visits, who does he visit? Because it's going to tell us something about the man. He doesn't visit the king. He visits the people. So he's giving the people a chance to, to repent. And so he comes and he warns them and he gives a couple of important messages. So he basically says, oh, you guys are wicked. So in case you think you're doing really well, let me tell you you're not right? Let me tell you, you're not, you're very wicked. And that it's a, the Lord says you need to repent and turn to him. Or he's going to deliver them into the hands of their enemies. There's going to be bondage. You'll be afflicted. And then you'll know, 
then you'll know that it's God. So and, and you're like, oh, we're so blessed. And God's like, you are not blessed. You are fooling yourselves. So you will know, unless you repent, I'm going to make sure you know. So it's interesting. And then here are a couple other clues about what the people are doing, what their great sins are. It says that they're slow to hear the cry. Uh, the Lord will be slow to hear their cries. They'll be smitten by their enemies unless they show true repentance. So they are showing that they are wicked, that they aren't listening, that they will be in bondage. Um, but how, you know, how did they get there? It says that they, uh, at the very end of this chapter in 11, it says something interesting about the people. It says that they hardened their hearts. And it tells that Noah did the same. He hardened his heart and he did not repent. Have you ever heard the phrase, harden your heart? Yeah, we, we've heard it a lot. Um, this is a really interesting story because this one I think should jump out at us, hardening our heart. It is a few places, but one of the most famous places was another king. Okay, so this is an Old Testament people. They would have had the brass plates. So where would they get these scriptures? We already know Isaiah is coming in, but there is a, they've been telling these stories in Mosiah about a group of people who are going to be delivered from their enemies. They're going to go into the wilderness and they're going to be delivered from their enemies. And there's a king who hardens his heart and keeps the people in bondage. Is the story reminding you of any other great king who keeps the people in bondage and won't let them go worship the Lord? Yeah, Pharaoh. This is the Moses story in so many ways. And I think these clues that we should be seeing them, I, I think they're uh, bright flashing signs. So if you go back and read the beginning of the Exodus story, you'll see that um, the Lord uh, Pharaoh, and he's never called by name, he's just called the king, Pharaoh. He's the big bad in the story. Pharaoh has hardened his heart, and it says five different times that heart, uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then it says the Lord hardens his heart. Uh, interesting that it switches there. So think about why does the Lord harden his heart? Why, why, why is it that way? But for five different, five, the first five times, um, with the different signs and the plagues and Moses and all the things happening, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And here's another clue of what's happening to them. They are, they're doing this to themselves. They're not listening. They know the law of Moses. They know the scriptures. And yet these people are hardening their hearts. And so is Noah. So that is an interesting clue. It says, it doesn't say that they're just doing so much sin that they just, they've blown it. It's they've done the sins. They're being iniquitous. They're living an idolatrous life um, and doing these abominations. But they won't change. That's the great sin. The Lord's always like, I'll let you change. I'll let you, I'll, if you listen and you change and you return to me and you humble yourself, I will welcome you back. That is what I'm hoping for. But if you harden your heart, I can't do anything with that. Interesting. But it really reminded me of the Pharaoh story whenever this. I was like, wow, I hadn't seen that before. So, harden my heart. Okay, so so now you have the people who are hardening their hearts. You've got the priests who are very proud and idolatrous and full of power. And then you've got Noah, who is just the, the worst of all. And then you've got Abinadi, who's coming and he's teaching the people. Now, he flees, right? So you know the story. So those are our those are our four characters. Now in the next few chapters, we're gonna see that it's going to be all four of those people, but in a lot of ways it isn't just King Noah, it's the priests. The majority of the conversations are gonna be uh, these dialogues between the priests and Abinadi. Why? Why is it not Noah and Abinadi? 
And who recorded this? Where are we getting this story from? Abinadi dies. Noah dies and certainly wouldn't have written, written a story about how terrible he was. Who, whose record, where did Mormon get this record from? Ah, probably one of the priests who repents. And he tells the story. I think we're getting this story from Alma. And so he's going to focus on his people, his group, the priests. And he's going to know exactly what they were doing. Now, yes, they were led by Noah, and they led the people astray as well. And the people made their own choices. However, you'll see that the battle is between the priests and Abinadi. So first wave, people. Next wave, priests. Okay? All right. So just something to think about as you go and read through those that the narrative it's going to be uh, this narrative story and these are some of the people and the characters and there's a lot of time spent on these characters we don't often in scripture get a lot of characters and if you do they tell you a little bit so that you learn about them you don't hear their backstory you don't hear those things for a reason but every piece you get tells you something important so ask yourself this question why did mormon include these characters why did he include noah why did he include the priests? Why did he include the people? What were the characteristics that made them unrepentant? Did they have a chance? And why didn't they listen to Abinadi? And why is Abinadi different? What about him makes him different? Why is he in this story? And we know, oh, spoiler alert, not going to turn out great for Abinadi, or is it? All right, scriptorians, that's our first section on the battle of Abinadi and the wicked priests and next time we're going to do actually a little bit of the trial scene all right keep on reading